Nehemiah tells the story of the rebuilding of the walls and the temple in the city of Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity in the, in the sixth century before Christ. And he says, another translation from what Sandy just read, thank you by the way, <laughs> So I armed the people with swords and spears, with bows and arrows, and I stationed them behind the wall, wherever it was unfinished. I stationed them behind the wall. During the summers before and during my college years, I worked at construction jobs. First as an apprentice pipe fitter, and later on as a carpenter's helper. And during those uh, summers, I spent uh, many an hour out in that hot, humid South Louisiana sun, and many other hours up in some even hotter attics. And I learned very quickly that first summer particularly that uh, construction is both a difficult and a dangerous business. But I also learned that renovation or reconstruction are far more difficult, far more dangerous, far more complicated than is new construction. Because in renovation, in rebuilding, you've either got to tear down that which has already been built or work around that which is still standing. And in the process, you've got to be very, very careful that what is existing or standing there doesn't fall on the top of your head or doesn't come out beneath your feet. Not to mention watching for bare electric lines hot pipes, all these other kind of things that can get in your way and really mess you up if you're not careful. And so having those experiences, I can only imagine how much more difficult, how much more complicated, how much more dangerous such reconstruction would be if first of all, you were trying to rebuild an entire city. The ancient city of Jerusalem, surrounded by huge walls with, with uh, building blocks the size of automobiles. That's, that's what we're talking about. But complicating even that was the fact that the enemy, those who had occupied the lands after the Jews had been forced out and before they came back, these people didn't want the Jews to come back in and inherit the land that they had been living in for 70 years. You know, and do you blame them? Folks, what's going on in the Middle East right now has been going on for an awfully long time. And the process is still the same. Two different people want to occupy the same space. And so a very difficult task was made even worse by the fact that there were those who didn't want them there and certainly didn't want them rebuilding uh, that ancient sacred city of Jerusalem. 
And yet that is exactly what uh, the situation that Nehemiah and those Jews returning from captivity found themselves in during that period of time that we call the Restoration. Now you may remember that Bill told us last week that Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had sacked Jerusalem and had carted Judea's brightest and best off into the captivity in about 589 B.C. And when Babylon, which we call today Iraq, was then defeated by the Persians, which we call Iran. You beginning to see something here? They don't like each other either today, do they? When they captured, uh, Babylon was defeated, captured by the Persians. Then the Persian leader, Cyrus the Conqueror, allowed at least some of the deported, exiled Jews to return back home to uh, Jerusalem under Ezra. In a different circumstance, John Denver sang about that 45 years ago when he talked about coming home to a place they'd never been before. And most of them hadn't. It was the homeland of their parents and their grandparents, their ancestors. But most of those Jews who returned to Jerusalem under Ezra and Nehemiah had never laid eyes on that territory before. So once they got back to the territory of uh, their ancestors, what they considered to be their home, homeland, these returning exiles found a truly daunting ch- task before them. As I said, repairing and rebuilding those walls and the temple and whatever was one thing. But they had to do so in the face of fierce opposition from those who didn't want them there in the first place. And so it's no surprise, I I don't think anyway, that 50 years after Ezra's return, Nehemiah brought another group back to Jerusalem and found that not much had been done in that rebuilding process. And so our Old Testament book of Nehemiah is the story of that rebuilding process. And it tells us that in spite of the obstacles that that task was completed, But in order for that to happen, several things had to be going for those returning Jewish exiles. First and foremost, it's the simplest and the most profound all at the same time, God was on their side, okay? Returning and rebuilding was what God had told them to do. Therefore, the second factor in their favor is that they were deeply, deeply committed to the common good. They were dedicated, heart and soul, to that rebuilding project. A third factor, I think, that allowed them to have success in that project is that they completed the task in spite of some very significant differences that existed between them. 
In other words, like so many today, they did not major in minors. They got the job done. And the variety of those working on that rebuilding project, to me, is quite striking. It's astounding. Because some of these workers and defenders were identified by their families. Sometimes they were identified by the professions in which they engaged or the place of their families or their previous residence. Some of these folks were priests. (laughs) Preacher working at hard manual labor. (laughs) I can laugh at that, you can't. They were priests and they were lay people. Some were uh, political rulers of one sort or another. Others were merchants and businessmen. Some of these folk worked with their minds while others worked more with their hands. And yet in spite of these differences between these folks, they focused not on those differences. They focused not on those dangers and difficulties that they encountered. Rather, they focused on accomplishing the task before them. They focused on accomplishing the task before them. Yes, it was hard work. Yes, it was dangerous. But they knew that what they were doing was one, important to the survival of their families, and two, it was important to God and to the survival of the faith into future generations. And folks, make no mistake about it, even though they didn't realize it at the time, those future generations for whom they were unknowingly working included you and me. In order to protect themselves from the enemies outside of those walls, they divided the labor and they took turns at what they were doing. We're told that half of the men would generally work on the wall itself while the other half stood in the places where the wall was not quite completed and uh, were the defenders of the workers to keep those who didn't want them there from deterring the rebuilding process. And when things were particularly perilous as they were from time to time, We're told that those workers, and I can't even imagine this, but we're told that those workers went to the wall with their tools in one hand and their weapons in the other hand. You talk about difficult. You talk about dangerous to have your tools and your weapons both in your hands at the same time. Hmm. I wouldn't want to be a part of that project. Not me. And yet, in that manner, in that manner, 
working together with a common focus, facing all of the obstacles that they faced. Those folks rebuilt the walls, they rebuilt the city of Jerusalem, and eventually some years later would allow Solomon to come in there and rebuild the temple. Or they would come and rebuild Solomon's temple. In football, at least back in the day, when the opposing team would be approaching your team's goal line about to score, some teams would go into what was called, or at least called, we called it in Baton Rouge, a gap eight defense. I don't know how many of you guys may have played ball and might be familiar with such. But what, what would happen is everybody, instead of lining up nose on with the opposing player, everybody would move over a slot. In my case, when I was trying unsuccessfully to be a part of the team, they made me move from straight over the center to my left, and so I was between the center and the right guard. And it was my job to plug up that hole and make sure nobody got through. Um, what I found out is that a football team is supposed to have to have, is supposed to have 11 players on the side. Whenever we were running those practices, I swear I got hit by 20 different people. Gap eight defense, plugging the holes, making it more difficult for the ball carrier to penetrate the line of scrimmage. But if it's done right, and I wasn't doing it, then that gap eight defense can be a very effective barrier to uh, the opposing team scoring a touchdown. Guarding the gaps. It was necessary in 6th century B.C. Jerusalem. And it's sometimes necessary, I maintain, in our lives today. We sometimes need a gap defense, particularly uh, as we're working for our children, our families, our grandchildren, our greats, for our community, for our church for our nation. I want to approach this idea of gap defense this morning in two different angles. First, I want to talk a little bit about uh, interpersonal relationships within the community of Christ, within uh, the body of believers here in the church. You know, over the now 50 years of my career, 40 active, um, I've had way too many funerals, way too many funerals. Once serving two little churches out in the country, I had 26 funerals in a two-year period of time. Do the math, that's more than once a, once a month. That's too many. But one thing that I, that I learned, well, you know, some of the funerals that I, that I did, once for the mayor of the town and once from a soldier killed in the early days of uh, the war in the Middle East, 
Twice I've had uh, funerals in a, you know, a, a community arena you know, where hundreds and hundreds of people were gathered. In case of the soldier, you know, it, the auditorium was huge and they had to put chairs around the side and whatever you know, to honor this fallen hero. But I did a lot of others where there was just three, maybe four, grieving family members gathered around a grave as they said goodbye to a loved one. And folks, for the life of me, I can't imagine, and believe me, I don't want to. I can't imagine what it would be like to go through the death of a loved one as some here in our community have done quite recently, to go through such an experience virtually alone. It's just beyond me how people can get by without, without friends and family gathering around to, to build them up and support them in, in a time such as that. And I'm here this morning to tell you that I celebrate Pittman Park Church. And I love the fellowship that we have. And I am so deeply grateful uh, for the way we come together in times of difficulty and need and bolster one another in our pain and in our heartache and in our grief. And I'm proud to be a part of such a community. In a similar vein, Mickey and I, and she almost always went with me, to the hospital waiting room when somebody in our church or a church family member um, was having particularly critical surgery. I mean, all, all surgeries are critical, right? <laughs> you know, I had routine but serious surgery 12 years ago and I almost didn't get off the table. <laughs> so I kind of understand that. But we, you know, with folks having serious surgery, uh, Mickey and I just... The whole process, we stay in the waiting room. Yeah, I had a bajillion other things I could have been doing, but I wanted to be right there with those folk, with those family members. But inevitably, we'd look around that waiting room and we'd see folks, one here, two there. And that didn't have anybody sitting with them. Didn't have even anyone gathered about them. And, and Mickey and I would talk on the way home sometimes and saying, man, what it, must it be like for, for those people to be going through that kind of anxiety and to have to do it virtually alone? So again, I thank God that I'm a part of a church that reaches out in love and fellowship, you know, when things are difficult for us, who, who help us to guard the gaps in our own lives. And so here, more than 2,500 years after the fact, these verses from Nehemiah, if we allow them to, can speak to us very, very loudly and clearly. And they offer us a picture of what the church of Jesus Christ can be, what it should be, what it must be. What it must be in the world surrounding it today. People of different ages and races and skill sets Differing lifestyles, 
people with different images of God or how best to serve God, all of these people coming together to accomplish the task of what we sometimes call kingdom building. Kingdom building. We're no longer building the walls of a city by what we do and what we say and what we think. We are building, helping to build God's kingdom. So let's think together for a moment in the second aspect of this sermon this morning. How can we work together to help God build that kingdom he has called us to help build? Some of you may remember back in 1996, we had a presidential election. A guy by the name of Bill Clinton was running against the senator from Kansas by the name of Bob Dole. And not surprisingly, Mr. Dole and President Kennedy's, or Kennedy, listen to me, Clinton, Clinton's wife, Hillary, and Dole, had an ongoing argument during that election process uh, about family values. And Mr. Dole was proclaiming loud and clear that it took a family to raise a child. Was he right? Of course he was right. At the same time, Ms. Clinton was saying it took a fam or a community to raise a child, a village. A village, thank you. Got off track there. It took a village to raise a child. Was she right? Absolutely. You know, they're arguing and yet they're both right. It takes a family. But it takes the village surrounding that family to help and to bolster, to encourage, to back up schools and medical facilities and personnel, cultural resources, and the church. The church. Individual congregations like ours as well as the larger judicatories of which these congregations are a part. Now, as we said earlier, it's Mother's Day. And again, happy Mother's Day to all of you. Bless you, moms and mother figures. God knows what we'd do without you. I wish I could have called mom this morning. Love you, Ness. But anyway, it's great to express our appreciation to our moms and those others who have had such a, a vital part in our lives. But yet in the Wesleyan tradition, we call the, today the Festival of the Christian Home. Festival of the Christian Home. And that reminds us that it's not just mothers, but that all of us have a responsibility to create in and of our homes, including our church home, a microcosm of what we want the world to be. Now, I'm sure I 
need not remind you, but I am. That the moral structures and the pillars of society around us today appear to be in shambles and things are going from bad to worse rather rapidly, unfortunately. You look around, you see the papers, you see the news, uh, electronic news media, you know, and, and I believe that some form of gap eight defense is needed today for our children, for our youth, for their families, to help them survive in a day such as our own. They desperately need help in overcoming those obstacles that confront them that they encounter day by day by day. Now, it's not quite as true in here right now as it was uh, in the earlier service this morning. Nevertheless, when I look around, I see a lot of grandparents. Even a few of y'all are great-grandparents. And I'm sure you are in both, both meanings of the term. And if you're anything like me, most, if not all, of your grandkids live someplace else. They're not here. Life's just that way sometimes. And I know, believe me, I know that it would be easy for us to sit back and say, hey, we've had our time at the wall. We face the dangers and the difficulties. We're old and we're tired and we've done our best and we've got the scars both internal and external to prove it. And so now it's time for us to relax to sit back to enjoy the fruits of our labor in the time that we have left, let somebody else do it. Bob Sherwood's had that feeling. I see it on his face. And the rest of you have too, if you're honest. Am I right? But let me tell you something. I wish we had that liberty but we don't. And I maintain that if we who have admittedly done our parts don't step into those breaches being formed around us in the world today, that those walls that are remaining will continue to crumble, that the enemies of all that we know and hold as good will penetrate those fragile defenses if we don't do something about it, it's going to happen. You can write that down. You can write it down. And as it's been said so many times before, if we don't do it, then who will? If we don't get it done now, when will it get done? If we don't do it here, where will it get done? A preaching's supposed to be good news, not bad news, right? 
So I share good news with you this morning, that all is not lost. Remember the story of Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Yes, it was tough. Yes, it caused them sacrifice and pain. Yes, they were doing that when they would rather have done something else. But they got the job done. And the main thing about that is that 500 years later, there was a young man by the name of Jesus of Nazareth who walked those streets and through those walls that they had built at such a sacrifice. And you and I are, you, are who and what we are today because of what he did where they did it. You hear what I'm saying? In order to be faithful to the times in which we live, God is calling us today to step into those gaps, to do our part and more, not only for today, but for tomorrow and the day after that and all of the tomorrows to come. A paraphrase I saw this past week of the book of Psalms 122 says, We cannot have a better cause than to fight for our brothers and sisters, for our sons and our daughters, for our grandkids and our great-grandkids, for those whom God has placed in our midst right now. All that is dear to us in the world lies at stake, says the psalmist. Therefore, behave yourselves valiantly valiantly. And so today we ask that God would help us to be faithful disciples of Jesus Christ as we mold the world around us for the generations to come. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.